first half of John's Gospel retells stories and signs that take place over three years of Jesus' ministry in the first century. The second half of the Gospel, more or less, focuses on Jesus' last week, and a large portion of that is set on the night that he was betrayed. In this part of the spiritual Gospel, we will explore what scholars have named the Farewell Discourse. It is a large block of teaching set on the night before the crucifixion. In the story, it sort of functions as Jesus' last lecture to his disciples. He tries to prepare them for what's to come, he gives them some final instructions, and he encourages them to wait and trust. And even though this teaching is firmly embedded in a remote culture in the distant past, many of its themes remain relevant for us today. Join us as we consider the Farewell Discourse. Welcome TRP and online guests. Thank you for hitting the volume button down here. Uh, we're planning to release this video on Sunday, so if we made it, I'm sure that your timeline is flooded with all sorts of Bible studies and sermons and streaming options for your church. So we really do appreciate you guys taking some time to hang out with us for a little bit. At TRP, we usually preach through entire books of the Bible, so you're catching us in the middle of a sermon series on the Gospel of John. We've called it the Spiritual Gospel. We named it that because Clement of Alexandria in the late 2nd, early 3rd century uh, called John a spiritual gospel to distinguish it from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which according to him concerned only the bodily things, uh, whatever those are. You can certainly argue with his description, but clearly John is a lot different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke in terms of its theme and its style and its content. John is sort of out there doing his own thing. Now, I, I lied a little bit already. I mean, we've only been going for about a minute now and I've already lied to you. I said that we were in the middle of a sermon series and we're not. This is week 49, week 49. Uh, in a series on the Gospel of John. Uh, we've been at it a long time and I'm pretty embarrassed by that, but I'm a huge Bible nerd and I have some OCD tendencies, so here we are. You are getting all of the facts. Believe me, uh, with things being as they are, I absolutely played around with the idea of hitting pause on the Gospel of John and doing an eight-week series on biblical plagues, uh, but we ended up thinking that might be a little bit too on the nose. Uh, I, to be honest though, I have struggled with whether or not to address what's going on in the world around us or just to kind of keep going. And at least for, for now, uh, we're going to try to establish some form of normalcy, some form of uh, routine. Uh, if, if we need to pause though and uh, just address the fact that God is with you, that God is good, that you are loved. Um, I would love to affirm those, those truths in your life uh, whenever you're watching this video. Um, but the passage that we've queued up uh, for this teaching, it has nothing to do with the coronavirus or any other sort of contagion for that matter. Uh, neither are we going to be giving you any tips on living in quarantine or how to properly socially distance yourself. Uh, for that, we would encourage you guys to go to the CDC's website for up-to-date information and guidelines, and we would certainly encourage you to follow the recommendations and mandates put out by our state's governor and wherever you're listening, uh, whoever's in charge there, making big decisions about whether or not you should stay um, 
inside and for the length of time in which you are to do that. Uh, hopefully, you're ready for a little bit of a break with regard to virus-related things. Our text today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 15. It's in a section that scholars call the farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. It's from chapters 14 through 17. And you can think of it like Jesus's last lecture to his disciples. Uh, in the book of John, Jesus is super wordy. He does a lot of teaching and he gathers his people and he tries to instill uh, instruction and encouragement to them a lot. This teaching that takes place on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas. In fact, Judas has already gone to alert the authorities. And as the story unfolds, Jesus will soon be handed over to them, tried and crucified as an insurrectionist. But for now, John has Jesus and his disciples together. And Jesus is seizing on this opportunity to give them some final instructions before he dies. For the most part, this teaching is really positive. He says, don't be afraid. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm leaving, but I'll be coming back and I'm gonna take you with me. He promises them, if you believe in me, that you are going to do greater works than, than he has ever done, than Jesus himself has done. I will do whatever you ask in my name, he says. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will love you. I will reveal myself to you. I'll leave you my peace. One of the recurring themes in this set of text is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is trying to convince his disciples that it's actually good for him to go away because when he does, then he can give his spirit to guide them, to lead them, to empower them, to instruct them. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. You'll be okay, he says. Things are going to get tough for a bit, but I will be with you. And actually, we could pause here and say that there's, there's a lot of overlap for us in our own times of uncertainty, but uh, we're going to leave that for a moment. Marianne May Thompson, who's a New Testament scholar at Fuller Seminary, she says that the farewell discourse, it aims to provide comfort and assurance for the period after Jesus's departure, after his death. But in our passage, Jesus takes a really hard right-hand turn, which admittedly, it's not too weird for farewell discourses in the ancient world. This is something that happened. Warnings like the one that he's about to give, they're normal. But after all of the positive that has proceeded, Jesus says, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a, servant is not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also, but they will do all these things to you on account of, of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It was to fulfill the word that is written in their law 
they hated me without cause. Now, Jesus begins this set of teaching by saying, if the world hates you, and scholars note that the if in this condition, it's not really a hypothetical. It's what Raymond Brown calls a real conditional. It's as if Jesus is saying, the world does hate you. It will hate you. In other words, Jesus is warning his people that this opposition, it just comes with the territory. We've got all this good stuff in chapters 14 and the first half of 15, promises that Jesus makes to his disciples, but now he says, the world hates me and it's going to hate you too. The world persecuted me and it will persecute you too. Now, I know, I know, I know, this is all a bit dark. Uh, it's certainly not a text that most people would go to when their community is basically in quarantine and when they're scared and when they're alone. Uh, but here we are. And this passage, it did get me thinking primarily about how Jesus's warning is sometimes understood. And I'm not sure, to be honest, I'm not sure if I'm conjuring up something here or not, but the more I consider it, it seems like this is something that, that happens. What was a real conditional statement for Jesus and for his followers? It was a veritable fact of life that whoever aligned with Jesus that they would have opposition, that they would be hated. But many Christians, it seems, they view the statement more as a challenge. Like, how can we make the world hate us? What can we do to tick people off enough in order to prove to them that we follow Jesus? How can we isolate as many people as possible because of our radical love for Jesus? And then if people are oppositional, if they do get some pushback for the things that they say or perhaps the things that they believe, if they find their actions to be objectionable by this group of people, then they wear that kind of as a badge of honor, like they must be doing something right because the world hates them, just like it hated Jesus. Have you ever seen this before? Is this just me? For some folks, if someone is offended by something they say, then they spin it to conclude that they must be speaking truth or something like that. Maybe it's just Facebook that brings out the absolute worst in some people, but it seems like we see some of this interchange where Christians stand on their principles, which is great, but they, in the process, isolate people who don't think like they do. Now, I will say that reading the passage this way as a challenge to that we should rise to, it's absolutely the wrong way to view what Jesus is saying. It's not a challenge to make people hate you for the sake of Jesus. It's not something we should aspire to. It's not something we should try to do. And it's the same with the bit about persecution. First, this, this might be a little bit controversial here, uh, but what was a real conditional statement for Jesus' disciples in the first century? It's not necessarily real for us, right? 
I mean, their context was very different than ours. Jesus was an insurrectionist. He died as an enemy of the state, more or less. He was polarizing and a dangerous figure. And following him was potentially very costly. To remember, when Paul first started out, he was persecuting and killing Christians. And this was 30 years after Jesus' own death. And Paul was praised for it. I say this a lot, so if you're a regular member at TRP, then just humor me for a bit, but it seems like we're so deprived of religious persecution in America that we have overblown really incidental infractions, like having to endure the absolute hardship of an employee at Target saying to you, happy holidays, when every fiber in your being is just wanting them to say Merry Christmas. And this kind of stuff has become a real conversation that we have. Remember the Starbucks cup fiasco? I forget what that even was about. They're not red and green. I, I don't remember, but it was some kind of fake persecution on Christians. Now, I, I don't want to diminish the very real opposition that does happen because of Christian religious commitments. Sometimes following Jesus, it, it will alter your relationship with your friends or your family, maybe with your employer or perhaps even with your larger community. And in some parts of the world, it's still very dangerous and very costly to be a Christian. This persecution, it, it happens. We should be aware of it. We should be praying about it. We should not minimize it. Uh, but we might come away from a reading of this passage, even as Americans who shop at Target during the holiday season, excuse me, during Christmas, and we expect to be hated or to be persecuted. I mean, Jesus said that this would happen, right? But for many of us, I'm not so sure if we're going to be hated or if we're going to be persecuted unless we just try to bring that on. And if we do that, I don't think that that means that we're doing it right. It might just mean that we're being jerks. Maybe this is a strange tie, but in, in response to the spread of the coronavirus, right, the situation that we find ourselves in, the fear and the uncertainty that it's bringing about in our society at large. I've seen many, many different people from many different religious or non-religious backgrounds. I've seen them rally together to help one another. People that don't agree philosophically or theologically or politically. These people are gathering together to pay for kids' lunches, to serve them, uh, to check in on their neighbors, to help cover bills of people that have lost jobs, to support local businesses, to go shopping for people who are at risk. Folks are staying home. Many of you are staying in your homes because you don't want to spread a virus that could potentially decimate a family. If I may be so bold, what COVID-19 has exposed is the fact that there are many non-Christians, people who we might identify as the world, who are not actively hating or persecuting the church or us, 
Rather, they're embodying the call to live and love like Jesus did by their actions. In America, we're not hated. We're not really persecuted, not for following Jesus. For us, this is not still a real conditional statement. At least in my reading of this passage, that that doesn't mean that we should seek to make it one. Now, okay, you might be sitting there thinking like, whoo, this is spicy. This is a bit of a hot take here. And it might be different than what you've heard in the past. This is kind of what we do at TRP. But as you take in all of this, like what this passage is about and how it has anything to do with us, as you mull that over, I want you to brace yourself for a minute. Because when you dig a bit deeper into this passage, when you explore the type of people that Jesus is talking about when he says the world, some, some really challenging stuff it begins to emerge. So, so you tell me, when you hear the world, what image pops into your head? Who is it? What do they do? What sets them apart? I bet we have some preconceptions here, especially if we've spent any amount of time in the church. Now, I don't want to take my own negative experiences and, and place them upon you, but the world, I would guess, for many of us, are those who don't share our beliefs. They're sinners, the unsaved, non-Christians. And depending on your experience, this group may have varied descriptions of what type of stuff they do and do not do, from dancing to playing cards to having sex and doing drugs or having sex and doing drugs while dancing and playing cards. And meanwhile, we have feminists who are all running companies and fighting for equal pay and wearing really stylish monochrome pantsuits. Once we get past all the silliness of whatever that is, uh, you can tell I've got some, some stuff here. Whatever that is, uh, let's think about this for a second. Jesus says, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. So who hated Jesus? I'll give you a hint. He says later that this group and their hatred of him was to fulfill the word that is written in their law, which is they hated me without a cause. Whose law? Now, for the Bible nerds out there, and just to satisfy my own OCD tendencies, this law, which says that they hated me without a cause, it's actually thought to be a citation from the book of Psalms, so technically not the law. Uh, but don't let that stop you from connecting the dots. And if you're not already there, I'll give you one more huge hint. Jesus says later that these opponents, the people that hated him and will at some point, maybe even currently do hate his followers, that they will, quote, put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, he says, an hour is coming when those who will kill you will think that by doing so, they are offering worship to God. Do you got it? 
the world in this passage, it seems to refer to the people in Jesus's sphere, people that are close to him who should have known who he was and what he was about and what he was doing, but, but they didn't. Now, I, I want to be careful here because the Gospel of John, if we're being honest with one another, it, it, it treads on anti-Semitic ground from time to time. Uh, people have certainly read that in as Jesus is referring to the Jews or the world throughout the text. But for Jesus here, the world as a description, uh, it seems to be identifying the religious elite those who were so bound by their traditions and customs and interpretations that they were unable to see Jesus for who he was. It was the religious people who rejected him. And perhaps, while we are off trying to incite the anger of non-Christians to prove how much we love Jesus, maybe what Jesus is really saying to us is, if you follow me, Maybe it's the religious folks that will hate you, that will oppose you, that will be against you, because that's who was against me. Now, I don't want to sow division here, especially now. I mean, the church at large is doing some really beautiful stuff. And while some of us may be jockeying for likes and views and shares and publicity and recognition, I know that there is a genuine Jesus-like concern for the well-being of our community that's being displayed by many Christians during this time, and that should be celebrated. But I also know, at least in my own life and experience, that I haven't, I haven't been hated by the world for believing the things that I do about the Christian faith. I have, however, been ostracized from the larger church for reading certain biblical passages the way that I do, or for granting acceptance and inclusion for certain people groups that others may not, or for thinking about justice and equality in a way that attempts to deal honestly with my own privilege. As my thoughts about Jesus and the Bible and the Christian faith, as they have been evolving and changing over time, I've actually found more allies with non-Christians sometimes than with other Christians. Now, I know that I don't have it all figured out. I'm sure that I'm way off in some of my interpretations and theology in, in many different spots. In fact, N.T. Wright says that we're all wrong in our theology at certain points. The problem is we just don't know which ones. But when we follow Jesus, when we take risks, when we love those on the margins, who is that gonna tick off the most? In my experience, it hasn't been the world. It's been Christians. And at least in this context, in, in the Bible, in the passage that we're looking at, there, there might be some warrant for that. I don't want to read it in. I don't want to make the, the text do things that it's not intending to do. But the people who hated Jesus and persecuted Jesus, they were also the people that had the power to throw his followers out of the synagogues. They were the religious leaders who decided who was in and who was out according to their standards. And I wonder, 
if Jesus was speaking to us today, who would he warn us about? Of whom would he say, yeah, this group, they aren't going to like you loving me and following me in this way. They aren't going to like you advocating for this group. They aren't going to like this interpretation of the Bible. And I wonder, if Jesus was speaking today, would we be part of the group that was loving him, that was living as a mirror image of him? Or would we be the group that was hating his followers and inhibiting the spread of the gospel? So you're, you're sitting at home, you're in front of your computer, you're watching this sermon, you're in quarantine, you're worried about a potential shutdown. It may have already happened, recording this on Friday, so I, I don't know. You might be worried about what's in your refrigerator or if you have enough toilet paper. Sorry, that's low-hanging fruit there. You might be worried about your job, you're afraid, and you're wondering, okay, Josh, this is all a bit intense, the world, it's hating Jesus and his followers. What, what does any of this have to do with me? And I want to give you a couple of suggestions of things to consider. First, if you've been written off, if you've been excluded or marginalized, if you've been viewed as the enemy for the things that you think or for the questions that you have or for the way that you process who Jesus is and how to follow him, I want to say that there's room for you. Even if your church in the past has been afraid of you, Jesus is not. Even if your church has been threatened by your thoughts and your questions, Jesus isn't. Even if your church has claimed that you are part of the world, Jesus' followers were quite a diverse group. They were committed to following Jesus, but they were very different. And it makes me wonder that if they were all attending churches, they probably wouldn't have all attended the same one. They weren't all Presbyterian. They weren't all Methodist. I, I assume there was diversity here, but that didn't mean that they weren't following Jesus and it didn't mean that they didn't belong. I think there's an underlying invitation here to, to leave your baggage of the church behind and maybe to reclaim your commitment to Jesus, to identify some of the motivations that, that move you to do the things that you're doing and to claim them as following Jesus, even if your church experience has been harmful. And second, I said at the outset that this passage, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the coronavirus. And, you know, it, it doesn't in any real practical uh, specific, at least, sense of the term. But I do think that there's room for some meditation on, on this. This passage, it seems to indicate that wherever we are, in whatever situation we find ourselves, especially if it's a situation like this where we're afraid and anxious and, and alone and in quarantine and we feel trapped, it's heartening to know that the word Jesus had for his disciples was, wherever you are, whatever you feel. I've been there and I've felt that. The world hates you. It hated me. 
I, I understand that. The world persecutes you. It, it persecuted me too. I've been in the difficult and painful moments. I get it. I can em empathize with you. Your feelings of fear and anxiety, they're not wrong. I've been there myself is what Jesus seems to be saying. He also seems to be saying, follow my lead. Continue to look outward and love well. I will be with you. On the surface, this seems like a bleak passage, like Jesus is taking this hard right and he's saying the world is going to hate you. You've got rough times coming. But may we be encouraged today that despite the world's opposition, whatever that may look like, that a chair has been pulled out for us at the table and an invitation is extended to us to follow Jesus to love others well as Jesus has loved. And it also helps us to see that when we accept this, when we align ourselves with the work and person of Jesus, even if we face opposition, we're not alone. My hope is that we might find solace together as a community of people who will take risks for those on the margins, as a people who will love as Jesus has modeled for us, and who, regardless of the opposition we face, align ourselves with the risen Jesus, committing ourselves to live and love as he has. Amen.